0: Well, again, it's great to be here and great to um, look at God's Word together again with you. We're back in the book of James today, so you can even turn there now to James chapter 1. And excited to look at this and continue on the theme of considering trials as joy. That's a, a longer passage that we're divided up into a number of weeks. And so it's a joy to be back in doing that. Before I started, though... I um, actually want to go to prayer one more time. Um, some of you may know uh, Don Carr, one of the elders in our group, uh, his wife, Logan, has been having medical issues and has been in a lot of pain. And uh, we just want to be praying for Logan, and just so that God would give her strength. Don's been caring for her a lot, and I know many of you have come alongside to be helping as well, but want to continue to keep her in prayer. So I just want to do that quickly before we look at the word together. Father, we are just um, hurting for Logan, uh, for our sister Logan, and just knowing the, the pain that she's going through, and God, just pray, Lord, that you would um, be with her and strengthen her, uh, be with Dawn as he cares for her and as this has um, gone on for a little while now, and Lord, we thank you that their trust is in you and their hope is in you through this significant trial, and um, Lord, we would pray that you would grant recovery for her, that you would heal her body, as we know that you can do, Lord. Lord, we just pray that you would give her um, just that faith in you through this, Lord, as uh, I know she loves you and uh, just longs to um, be able to be back fellowshipping with us here at church. So we ask uh, for you to be with her this day, in the name of Christ, amen. All right, thank you. So as I said, we're back in the book of James, and it uh, is, as I've talked to many of you, a favorite a favorite book of a lot of us, just because of how practical James is, how clear he is in, uh, in every way. And the theme of the book of James, as we've talked about, is genuine faith on display. This is what genuine faith looks like, is what James shows us again and again. And for those of us as believers, these commands are very instructive to us, okay, I have a genuine faith, this is how I should live. And certainly for those of you who uh, are not certain about your salvation, they provide good tests. If this is not true in your life, if the things that James makes clear are not true, then perhaps you do not have that genuine faith. And so we looked at before, the, an outline of the book of James can look like this. And I've showed this slide before, but it's we say 13 marks of genuine faith. This is what genuine faith looks like. And so he'll go through one by one on these marks of genuine faith. Now, we are only looking at the first one right now. We have did the greeting, and then we started looking at the first one, which is verses 2 to 18 in chapter 1. Now, we can't do all of 2 to 18 in one week. We're actually dividing that into four weeks. And so the outline for this first section, this first mark of genuine faith, which we're entitling, Genuine Faith Considers Trials as Joy, we looked last time at verses 2 to 4, and that was thinking rightly regarding trials. Thinking rightly regarding trials. And then this time, we're going to look at the second part, pray expectantly during trials. So when this is all part of this same theme of genuine faith and how it considers trials as joy, we will be looking in the future at verses 9 to 12, maintaining a perspective during trials, and then we'll look at distinguishing accurately between trials and temptations. So that's kind of where we're going, and I want to make sure uh, you had the big picture of what we're looking at as we are looking through the book of James, and particularly chapter 1, and this first test of genuine faith, do we have joy during trials? So for today, we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 8. So again, if you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, let's read that. Look down and read as I read it aloud. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this section that we are looking at today is directly tied to what we looked at last time. And as we looked last time, we are to consider trials as joy. And we may think on that, well, how is that possible? Trials are not enjoyable. I don't feel joy when I face a trial. They're hard. Trials are difficult. Trials is what we call when everything goes south in your life. It's Things aren't going as you want. And the command here is not to say, feel like they're joyful, pretend they're joyful, but is to think on them in this way, that we are to think of them as joy. Now, that's not the natural response, is it? When we face a hardship in our life, when we face some kind of difficulty... A natural or, frankly, sinful without Christ would be very different. Responses to trials include fear. We're fearful. What's going to happen? What's going to become of me? Will this disease be the rest of my life? I got fired. Will I ever get a job again? How are we going to make it financially? There can be a lot of fear as a natural response to trials. Complaining. Complaining often escapes our lips when things don't go how we want it. Sometimes, maybe it's just in our heads, in our hearts, that we're complaining. But that would be a natural response. Anger is also. We might be angry. Maybe someone else and what they did caused this trial in my life, or was in some way instrumental. Or perhaps, you're angry at God for allowing this trial in your life. Despair is often a result of trials. And then we respond like there's just no hope. It's never going to get better. This is nothing to be happy for anymore, nothing to live for anymore. Now these are natural responses I'm saying. And I say natural because this is without God. This is how we would respond. Because as we were reminded this morning by Pastor MacArthur, we are depraved people. We are born sinful and we naturally respond in sinful ways. But we see here in James chapter 1 that is not how we are to respond, and that we are to respond differently than what would come naturally. We're to respond really supernaturally to trials. And it says there in verse 2 consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And the key word we looked at there is that word consider, and it means to think on. We have to get our thinking right. And that is a key to this whole passage. So that's why it's critical that we review this before we go on to verses 5 to 8. Because this discipline of our mind, telling ourselves what is true, reminding is what you have to do when you're facing trials. Because if you let your feelings take the lead, rather than truth take the lead, it will lead you to despair and anger and complaining. You have to remind yourself of the truth. And the truth we saw in verses 2 to 4 is that God uses these trials in your life to make you more godly, to make you more Christ-like. We need to see that in themselves can be considered joy when we know what God is doing through those trials. It's God's purposes in the trial that's joyful. And so we, we talked about that, how it even requires talking to yourself more than listening to yourself. Reminding yourself, self, rejoice in God, he's doing something. And that is a discipline of our minds. Now, as you're doing that and you're working to think rightly and fighting that battle, and it's a battle in our minds, isn't it? It's it's reminding ourselves and fighting that in our minds. But you may get to the point, it's like, well, how am I to respond? I'm trying to think rightly. I'm trying to consider it joy, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to act. I don't know how to make the right decisions when I'm in the trial. And that is what James is going to address for us as he continues on in this theme. How do we know what to do when we're facing a trial? And here we're going to see, in this passage, verses 5 to 8, three actions. Three actions that you must take to obtain wisdom in trials. Okay, So the first one is five. the first action to obtain the wisdom you need is to recognize the need for wisdom. That's number one. You have to see that you have a need for wisdom. We see in this passage it's connected to the previous one because we see that connection word but right there. And it's uh, not a strong adversative. It's, it can be translated and or but. But it's making it clear that he's continuing the discussion. So this passage doesn't sit in isolation. It's saying, all right, you're in a trial, but you might lack wisdom. Now, another connection is the word lacks. At the end of verse 4, you may remember, what these trials are doing in your life is making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it just, he just said, lacking in nothing. That's what God is doing in us by putting these trials in our life. Well now he's saying, "But if any of you lacks wisdom." and in your process of sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, you may recognize right away, well, I'm lacking in wisdom right now. I am not perfect and complete yet, and I need God's wisdom and what to do and how to respond. here and says, "But if any of you lacks wisdom. And so now He's going to go on and explain that. Now, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, but what he's really saying, frankly, is when you lack wisdom. The word if here is a type of if they call it a first-class conditional statement, but it's basically saying if this is true and it is true. Constructed so in Greek is, look, if this is true, and if you lack wisdom, and you do lack wisdom, then... And then he goes on. We don't have... We use the word if... Um, Usually to mean it's it's a conditional thing and we don't know. Um, but occasionally we do. We'll say a sentence like, if you have any sense at all, then something. You know, you'll be a UCLA fan. Um, you know, which is obvious, right? Um, but yeah, a statement like that, if we were to say, if you had any sense at all, you would not want Brad to come back. What we're saying... No, we love Brad. He's in Texas preaching and so... Rice, don't tell your dad anything bad. Um, but in that kind of statement, if you had any sense at all, we're saying, well, I'm assuming you do have any sense at all. Well, a way, Although not nearly as silly as I just portrayed it. Uh, that's what James is saying. If you lack wisdom and you do. You lack wisdom. And that is a key thing we can't jump past here. We have to have the humility to say, look, I lack wisdom. Look, I, I don't know what to do. I can't do this on my own. That's a Christian life that every one of us must never lose. To think that I, I, I've grown spiritual now, I'm, I've been in the church for 10, 15, 20 years. I don't need more wisdom. I, I know what to do. No, every one of us needs to continue to ask God for wisdom, to be humble enough to say that. Now, it's important that we understand what wisdom is here. Wisdom, according to Scripture, right? Wisdom is knowledge applied. So this verse is not saying if, or if you lack knowledge, and of course you lack knowledge. No, it's saying if you lack wisdom, and this applied knowledge. A.T. Robertson, a a Greek um, theologian and, and grammarian, said, Wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. Another commentator said, For the Jewish mind, wisdom meant practical righteousness in everyday living or a more um, modern uh, interpretation or way to explain the difference between wisdom and knowledge, is knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in a a fruit salad. So, (laughs) there's a difference. You know it's a fruit, but you're not going to put it in a fruit salad. That is knowledge applied. That is understanding something and then acting accordingly. But in this context... I think the best definition that I read, D. Edmund Hebert said in his commentary, Wisdom is the moral discernment that enables the believer to meet life and its trials with decisions and actions. what he's saying we need to recognize that we lack, that we don't always have that moral discernment of knowing what to do, the decisions and actions that God would be pleased with. And we need to have that, because when trials come, and serious trials come in our lives, we prayed for Logan, and we know, I know there are serious trials. Issues, whether it's, whether it's um, employment issues, it's family issues, there's trials that you're facing. Don't, in facing that trial, think, you know, I can do this. I got this. Go to God, and we're going to see here that James encouraged us to do that very thing. Acting as if you are so strong you don't need to turn to God is not a sign of your spiritual strength. It's a sign of your spiritual pride. To think that I can do this without going to God is not like, doesn't make, oh wow, that person must be spiritual. No, it's that person's prideful to think that they can do it on their own. So we must first recognize the need for wisdom. Secondly, we must remember the source of wisdom. you can see that half of verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what we see here, the first truth that we see in the second part of verse 5, is that asking is commanded. It says here, let him ask of God. Now it sounds like in that, that that's an option. Let him ask if he wants to ask. But again, it's understanding, going back to the Greek, we see, no, this is an imperative. The word ask there in the Greek is a command. If you lack wisdom, and you do, you must ask of God. Every one of us lacks the wisdom. Every one of us must ask of God. And so we see it's an imperative, a suggestion or a tip for you in your Christian life. This is what God is telling us to do. And secondly, we see it's in the present active tense. Present active means it's ongoing. We must continually ask of God. You don't ask once. When you became a Christian, God give me wisdom and figure, I'm covered now. No, it's going to God every time you face a trial. And it's in the third person singular, which means it applies to every one of us individually. It's not just corporately, and certainly we pray corporately, but you individually, in your life, As you face trials, you must continue to ask God for wisdom. That is something that you continually lack, that I continually lack. Every one of us need God's wisdom in how to best respond when difficulty comes up. So the first truth we see in the second half here is asking is commanded. Um, We also see that the source is sufficient. It says, let him ask. Of God. We know where we should go when we're lacking wisdom. Now, does that mean you can't go to other people for counsel? No, certainly we should do that. Proverbs 20.18 says, Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. And we should seek wisdom from other people, from those godlier than ourselves. But that shouldn't come before you first go to the Lord. That should be your first reaction when trials come to your life. You pray to God for wisdom. And it only makes sense that we would go to the Lord for wisdom, because he is the source of wisdom. The Old Testament makes that clear. I think many of you are familiar with the story of Solomon. Solomon asked of God for wisdom, and the Lord made him the wisest man. We read that in 1 Kings 4, 29 and 30. The Proverbs speak of this as Solomon writes, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. It is to God that we must go, because it's from the Lord that wisdom comes. The Lord gives wisdom. We see this also in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom to him. It is he who He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So certainly the source is sufficient. We see we are to go to God. He is the one that has all wisdom and can provide wisdom to us. Another wonderful passage, and I it's relatively long, so you'll need to turn there. Turn to Job. The book of Job, chapter 28. And here in Job, he remarks about the search for wisdom and where to find it. So in Job, the book of Job, chapter 28, starting in verse 12. And this is what Job says. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come? and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say with our ears we have heard a report of it. Then verse 23. God understands its way, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it, and established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom." and to depart from evil is understanding. From God alone comes wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. Now certainly from other people we can find wisdom, but their ultimate source is God as well. If they're coming from God's word, then it is wisdom as well. So we are told, we're reminded of, when you lack wisdom, and you will, you go to God. That's who you go to. Remember the source. He is sufficient for it. Now we get there and say, look, this is your duty. You're supposed to do this. You're lacking wisdom. You need to, you need to pray. You need to ask God. You feel guilty about it if you don't. That's not the thrust of what he's going for here. It's not, this is what you must do. It's like, this is the opportunity. He's encouraging us to go to God. And how does he do that? Well, we see here, he explains who God is and why that's such an encouragement to go to him for wisdom. He says, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. He gives. And that is the way this is constructed here. It can almost be translated the God who gives. Ask of the God who gives or ask of the giving God. That is part of his nature. That is part of who he is, is he loves to give. He is generous and gives. He's not one that is loath to give you wisdom. And All right, well, I guess I'll provide some to you. He is happy to give because he is a giving God. It doesn't say we have to buy of God. It doesn't say we have to beg of God. We just need to ask of him because he is a giving God. and It's, it's a joy for him to give. You know, I think you know in your personal life, you have times when it is a joy to give. But there are times when maybe, you know, you're not as joyful to give. When I <clears throat> worked uh, for the city of Burbank years ago, you know, co-workers would pass around something. that was like a fundraiser for their kid. Like the boss's kid sends around a fundraiser for a jogathon or something, selling magazines. And you have to sign your name and put money in the envelope. And you don't do that. You look like a real jerk. And you got to do it. So here I am, you know, giving whatever it is to uh, the coworker's son for something that I don't care about and I don't know this kid. That's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> God is opposite of that. He loves to give. He's not grudgingly saying, all right, Rodney, you've asked me this for wisdom so many times. He is a giving God. And he says he gives to all, not just the favored few. It's not that God gives, well, you know, if, if you're one of the few people he loves, but it's to all to anyone who comes to him. Yes. It says generously, which literally means wholeheartedly or without reservation. Again, much different from the giving I did to coworkers. More of a giving like, it's my daughter, my granddaughter's one-year-old birthday today. And of course, I'm happy to give little Piper a gift on her one-year-old birthday. That's the kind of giving we're talking about, not the coworker giving that I mentioned earlier. Without, without grudgingly, uh, but he is happy to give and to provide to us when we ask. And finally, it says without reproach, he just keeps building on it over and over. He, he could have stated just very simply, he from the giving God, but he mentions these others just to help us to remember how much God loves to give without reproach. He's not going to find fault with you for asking. He's not going to say, okay, I told you before and you failed and now you're asking again? No, he's going to say, absolutely, here is wisdom. He does not reproach when we go to him asking for wisdom. So we see here in just the second half of verse 5, that three truths that asking is commanded, the and it will be given to him. This is a clear promise in Scripture, and we love to look at the promises of Scripture and how God fulfills those in his life, because every promise that God has given, he will fulfill. We can bank on it, right? We have a God who does not lie. We have a God who will do everything that he says he will do. 2 Corinthians 1.20. And that all of God's promises are yes and amen. They will be fulfilled. And here we have a promise from God that if we go to him for wisdom, he will answer. We're reminded, as James often does, he looks back to the teaching of Christ. And didn't Jesus say the same thing in Matthew 7? Ask And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? We have a God who is the sovereign, supreme king of the universe, but also is our heavenly Father, who loves to give to us, who wants to give to us. If you've been given to your kids, how much more God, who's a loving God, whose very nature is love? Is he going to give you a worthless gift? Of course not. He loves to give good gifts to his children. We're reminded in 1 Peter 5, 7, how much God wants us to come to him in prayer. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God wants us to come to him. He he commands us, cast your cares upon him, your anxiety on him. And when you're in trials, isn't that... What it is, you have anxiety, come to him because God cares for you and he, he will answer. He promises to give that wisdom to you and knowing what to do. What response do you have in trials? So the first thing we must do, the first action we see in this, is we need to go to God. Recognize our need for wisdom. Remember the source of wisdom is God. Now this does have a condition. Verse 5 ends with it will be given to him, but then we see now in verse 6, the third action we must take as we're seeking wisdom in trials, and that is resolve to obey God's wisdom. Resolve to obey God's wisdom. It says, but the person who's asking here, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what we see here is genuine faith is required. Genuine faith is required. He must ask in faith. And as he speaks of faith here and the faith that's required, he's not saying a set of doctrines, the faith, the the body of faith, but that person must have faith in God. And as we'll see again and again, genuine faith is what must be there. You cannot ask without that genuine faith. And what is that faith? That's a complete trust and commitment to do it is that commitment, that trust in him, saying, you know what, when you give me that wisdom, I will obey. I will do what you want me to do. That is what genuine faith does. And that is contrasted. So there's a complete trust and commitment to do what God and what pleases Him. And that's contrasted with doubt. Doubt then is not having a commitment to wisdom from God. What we'll see here as we look down later at the rest of the verse here. This person who doubts is compared to a double-minded man who's unstable, who won't receive anything from the Lord. And that helps us understand what kind of doubt is being talked about here. The doubt that we're looking at here is not momentary um, uncertainty. You know, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen. I'm trusting in you, I don't know how this is going to happen. That's not the doubt he's talking about. Now that kind of doubt comes up in our lives, that uncertainty does come up, and we see that even in the Old Testament, different heroes of the faith, and then in the New Testament. We think in the Old Testament, Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. In fact, Romans four twenty it says, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And yet, When Abraham and Sarah were told, you're going to have a child in your old age, what did Abraham do? He laughed. He had that moment of uncertainty. He had that moment of, I don't know, I don't know if that's possible, God. That was, in a sense, doubt, but that's not the doubt he's talking about here. That's a doubt of uncertainty where you go to God and say, okay, I'm going to trust you even though I don't know. We see this also with John the Baptist, don't we? when he's in jail and he sends his disciples to find out more about Christ, are you the chosen one? He does have a lot of uncertainty, but he's, what does he do in that? He goes to Christ. He doesn't say, well, I just don't know, so I give up, or I'll just do what I want to do now. But that's an uncertainty that God understands and wants us to come to him in prayer. So when we see this verse We need to ask in faith, not without doubting. It's like, well, once in a while I have uncertainty, so should I not pray? Do pray. That's not the doubting that's talked about here. The doubting that we're looking at here, it literally means to be divided against yourself, to dispute with yourself. And that's where you're torn between two directions. And it's really this tearing between, okay, I want to know what God wants me to do, but then I'll decide what I'm going to do. It's like those who go to counseling, like, Pastor, what should I do? Well, this is what you should do. Mm, okay, I'll consider that one. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm telling you, the Bible says to do this, you know. Um, the, if we go to God with that kind of doubt, the doubt of, I'm not sure if what you tell me to do, Lord, is what I'm going to do, if I'm really going to obey or not, that's the doubting that's talked about here. And that's the doubting that's genuine with faith. Genuine faith commits to obeying the Lord when he gives us the wisdom. When we see in his word, okay, I'm to respond with thankfulness. Okay, I need to show love back to those who hurt me. Okay, I'm going to trust in God and not complain. Genuine faith responds in a way that obeys without, like, maybe I'll obey. No, genuine faith obeys. You can't be one who doubts and decides, this time am I going to obey? Or this time, won't I obey? A person who's like that, who is undecided on whether they're going to obey or not, James compares to the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And the picture here is not waves crashing on the ocean, uh, on the shoreline of the beach, but in the middle of the ocean, the swells going up and down. And perhaps you've been out on a stormy day, and it just, it goes up and down. There's no rhyme or reason to it that you can tell, And it just seems chaotic out there, the waves going up and down. Well, that's what this person who doubts is like. This person who's undecided whether they're really going to obey the Lord or not. Like that sea that's all over and chaotic. That's what his life is like. And we are not to be that kind of people who have our hearts divided in two ways, are we? We are to remember that Deuteronomy 6, five reminds us you to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We need the full commitment to obey God. That's what it means to ask in faith, is, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. So we see then, finally, in verse 8, okay, we looked at that we see worthless faith revealed. Speaking of that doubting man who is not decided on whether he's really going to obey the Lord, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the and stable in all his ways. And we see there, James says, for that man. It's almost like holding in a distance. James is saying, that man, I'm not that man. Let me tell you what that man is like. He says, that man ought not to expect to receive anything because he is a double-minded man. A double-minded man literally means two-souled, is what that is saying. Two-souled, it's as if you have one part of you that wants to hear what God's word has to say, but part of you decides, "Mm, I'll decide later if I'm going to really obey that or not. It's having one foot in the door and one foot out the door. Now again, can this be describing a a weak, an immature Christian or what some would say a carnal Christian who doesn't always act like it, but but is really a Christian down deep? No, I don't think that's a, a fair way to interpret this. And partly we could see that because the other time, James uses this word. This word, double-minded, is only used by James. And it's only used twice. Here, and then also in James 4.8. And in James 4.8, it reads, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And here we see a parallelism between calling them sinners and calling them double-minded. In verse 8 here. And sinners, this context certainly is speaking of those who don't know Christ. Who are still apart from the forgiveness of Christ. And so understanding, James uses this two-souled man to speak of an unbeliever. So in our passage, we see this, that an unbeliever, a double-minded man, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He should not expect it as Christ loves his children, God, will give to us. But those who have not come to know Christ should not expect anything from him. And then we see, finally, he's unstable in all his ways. And that means in every area of con- of conduct, every area of life, there's a lack of consistency. There is uh, just... Uncertainty on what he's going to do and what he chooses to obey. Now, as we consider this double minded man, this person who doubts, I want you to remember one thing. Look again. This man who's doubting, he is a person who's praying. He must ask in faith those who go to prayer in doubting. There are those who come on a Sunday who say, Look, Look how nicely I'm dressed. I can say Christian things around Christian people. I, I love hearing God's word being preached. But then the rest of the week, don't live much differently than the world. They'll say gracious things to one another here in commissioned on a Sunday, but go home and yell at their wife. They'll go home and just selfishly demand what they want. That's the double-minded man. As James writes this, he's writing to churches, right? So it's not going out to unbelievers. He's writing to churches, but the the reality is inside the church are double-minded people with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. If it was completely in the world, they wouldn't be double-minded. They'd be single-mindedly pursuing the flesh. But they are double-minded, and the double-minded man... Just as much as the person who completely pursues the world is not a child of God, is not a believer. So so this passage is a warning. It's a warning to every one of us. Am I a double-minded man? Am I a person that nods my head on a Sunday, agrees with, oh, yeah, total depravity, I agree with that, and yet during the week decides, you know what? Uh, I don't. I don't need to necessarily stop complaining. I don't need. To, I don't need to be kind. I don't need to submit to my husband. I don't need to obey my parents. All the commands of Scripture. That's a double-minded man, and we need to make sure that is not us. So, as we consider this passage, there is a great warning, isn't there? A great warning not to be that double-minded man. And so in application, evaluate yourself. Are you that two-souled man? Are you a person that is much different on a Sunday than the rest of the week? If that is you, I beg you to repent. You may pray once in a while, but the reality is you haven't given your life fully to Christ. So I would plead for you to repent. Don't be a two-souled man. But the answer is past of you who say, I, I'm not. I fully want to obey the Lord. I want to do whatever he would want me to do. Go to the Lord for wisdom. We're given that encouragement here, a great encouragement to go to the Lord. You lack wisdom, go to him. He is a giving God and he wants to give that to you. He doesn't reproach in giving that to you. He gives generously. What a great encouragement here. We don't have to go to God because we feel guilty about it. We get to go to God because he loves us and wants to give to us. He calls us his children. One of the sermons that was preached this week at the Puritan Conference, it'll come out on a recording eventually, but it was on adoption. Joel Beakey spoke on adoption. A great message that reminded us of God because he's adopted us into his family. And he gave this illustration that I thought was very helpful uh, as we think of this passage. He told the story of a theologian named Charles Hodge. And he was moved into his new home on the campus of Princeton Seminary. Uh, This is many years ago uh, when Princeton Seminary actually was a good seminary. Um, But he was moved into campus there, I believe, to be president of the seminary. And the person showing him the house on campus, which was to be where he was to live, said, let us know if there's anything you need changed in this house. We want to make your stay comfortable here. We want to take care of you. And walking through the new home, Charles Hodge just had one request. He says, on on the door there to my study, can you please make the doorknob lower? Because I've told every one of my kids, they can come talk to me anytime. That I would love to hear from them. They have complete access to me. So lower that doorknob, would you? So my kids can come to me. And isn't that true about God? He wants us to come to any time. He tells us to come to him. And he will answer us. So let us do that. When you face trials, go to the Lord. Ask him for wisdom in your trial and commit to follow the wisdom that he provides. So let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful for your great love for us that you have called us your children and you want us to come to you at any time because you are such a giving God and so good to us. Lord, we uh, live in a fallen world. You know that very well. You know that certainly because you sent your own son to live in this fallen, broken world. Lord, where trials come up all the time. And Lord, we don't know always what to do. We just ask for your wisdom as we face those trials, so that we might know how to please you through them, so that we might grow to become the people that you would want us to be. And Lord, certainly we look forward to the day when Christ returns. Uh, We pray that would be today, that we would be free from this world of trials, and we can be glorified and be with Christ. Lord, we pray until that day comes that you would find us faithful. We ask in the name of Christ, amen.